over a decade of experience in video games, and all he has to show for it is this stupid podcast. It's Behind the Line Radio, with your host, Kinetic, and it starts now. Hello everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. Today, we're going to be talking about, well, translation, localization, some of the differences therein, and joining me this week, I've got David coming back. How you doing, Dave? I am swell. How's life <laughs> for you? I'm doing okay. You sound so enthusiastic. <laughs> Just a little tired, that's all. Yeah, so be it. Ah, so... Uh, one of the things that got me onto this topic was, it's not exactly new, but there was some, oh, what's the right word, controversy, you might say, a kerfuffle about, in particular, this Fire Emblem's game, or Fire Emblem, Fire Emblem Fates, that's the title, and fans going through and making their own translation, thinking that the official localized version was not authentic. Now, I find the term authentic to be particularly interesting because they're, they're, I'm going to take a, a, a little bit of a twist on this. At one point, I remember hearing someone describing something as authentic Mexican, but like food. But how do you define authentic Mexican food? Is it, you know, quality food, stuff that doesn't use spices from other places? Because oftentimes, if you want the best Mexican food, it'll be in California rather than Mexico, because in California, you have all the ingredients. If you're in Mexico, you're not necessarily going to have all of the same ingredients. So what's authentic? The the best version of it or the kind that you would actually get there? Not sushi burrito. That's authentic. I... <laughs> what? <laughs> sushi burrito. A sushi burrito. That's a California thing. Okay. No, no. Because of sushi. <laughs> it's good. That's good stuff, though. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's good. <laughs> I, I, that's not one I ever would have thought of. <laughs> what establishment serves such a thing? Uh, I think that there's a place in the Mission here in San Francisco that does sushi burrito. I think it's actually called Sushirito. I think it's the name of the place. I shouldn't be as surprised as I am that this exists. Yeah, California. It's mashing up all kinds of foods, right? <laughs> uh, like Dennis Miller once said, in my home state of insanity, I mean California. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, the getting back to the, the authenticity argument, I, I find arguments about authenticity, personally, I find them a little weird. I mean, I can understand where such thoughts come from, but I, st to me, for my aesthetics, I think it misses the point, but also I know I can't speak for everybody. Um, so if someone particularly wants, like, exact word-for-word -word transliteration, then, you know, so be it. Go for it. In terms of a per any particular individual case of a game, I think there needs to be an awareness that if you're moving the game from one region to another region, you have to understand that the audience is going to be different. And so there has to be some consideration made for the new audience. Now, again, some audience may not prefer that, and that's fine, but at the same time, I think that stating that this is going against the original artistic integrity of the work might be overstating it just a bit especially in the cases where the original creator approves of these edits. I think that's that's a huge part of it. I think that's really key to understand exactly what uh, the intention is and how original creators feel about it. I think that when, uh, when you get into localization versus uh, translation, a lot of times it's kind of like an afterthought. And so people don't pay much attention to it. But if you put a lot of thought into it, it can mean a lot more success because you end up treating your audience better. Um, but as I'm sure you're going to go into, there's a lot of gray area in terms of what is considered true or 
authentic or good for the, mm. the product. Yeah. Um, so to make sure we're defining our terms, translation, I, I believe this is how you mean it too. Translation being the direct, like, here is the sentence as it was in Japanese or Spanish or Russian and just rewriting it to be in English. Same context, same words. And localization is modifying the words, possibly some other things, rewriting the message a bit to speak to the new audience, to localize it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think uh, <clears throat> a lot of times what, what you'll find in, in games uh, is during the localization process, um, text goes out, text comes back. Um, in order to break into some markets, though, you actually have to do a greater deal of work for localization, including not just text translations, but also inclusive. Sometimes art changes need to be made or mm -hmm. specific gameplay changes have to be made. Um, and uh, at least in the work that I do in the games that, that I produce, there's uh, the localization teams that I work with. They're very sensitive to the context of the words that we send them. Mm. So they understand exactly what what the meaning is behind each one. Because when we send text off for translation or localization, um, sometimes it's just a standalone menu header, right? And mm -hmm. with without any sort of context, they don't understand or don't necessarily know what goes behind that. So... Um, as long as they either have access to the game or somebody that does as that has access to the game and the build that we're using, then they can get the understanding of, oh, okay, this is a header about, you know, a military vehicle called a hawk, not actually a, you know, bird. Uh, a bird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so like differences like that are very, can be very subtle and the process can be just as complicated as the words themselves. Mm -hmm. So okay, so since you hit on that, let's let's uh, talk about some of the tech of translating stuff or localizing stuff with respect to games, because that's the most interesting way to start off this conversation is the tech side. Am I right? Yeah, for sure. Tech <laughs> is always interesting. <laughs> it's the most approachable for the uh, general audience. Um, so a lot of times, uh, what'll happen is in a game you'll have a file of some sort or a dump it's it's not always in the same a, all in the same file but you can at least have a dump of text in the game uh if not in one file in in a few files or you know not it's not one text file for every line in the game that's for certain right and you would ship this off to some other house because pretty much no game maker no developer is going to have so many people there from so many different places that they're going to all be able to translate natively, you know, fluently into all of your target languages. So they'll receive all of this text and they say, okay, translate this into another language. And that's why you were, uh, Dave was talking about um, uh, the context. If you don't have access to the game, you won't understand is this supposed to be a proper name or is this supposed to be a reference to an animal or something? Uh, then uh, you get the text back and put it back in the game. And hopefully everything's correct. Now, there are other ways you can do this where um, uh, uh, you can actually have a special version of the game that you give to the translation house, so they can actually make changes on the fly, check them themselves. And one of the really big tricks with this is when you change languages, words are going to be different lengths, and you might wind up overreaching what you can fit in one text screen. So it's actually still important to go in there and see these text lines in-game to make sure they actually fit. Yeah, that's uh, that's always a big deal. Um, that it's one of it's like the, one of the things that gets missed the most in games. That and audio, I think. Mm. Um, you know, oh, we've you know allocated a certain amount of space for the word tank in this game, <laughs> and then you get it in German, and it's like Panzer tanken, shooten, killen, feisendigen. <laughs> and you're like, huh? 
Panzerkampfwagen. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, exactly. And it's like going out of the window by, you know, 700 pixels. And like, I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do with this now. <laughs> so you have more tech has to be built, you know, auto shrinking text uh, tech that to make sure that long words actually fit in there. And sometimes they're really tiny, but um, it's a big part of it. Um, Maybe in that case, you should just replace the word with an ASCII art representation of the word. <laughs> well, <laughs> just that's draw a picture. The, that was our biggest saving grace. We definitely did um, localization, and our localization team was fantastic. But the best way to to translate or to to, to get your message across is visually. A lot of times, you can tell a complete story with pictures that don't need any words and is universal to almost any uh, any culture or language, at, at least in our game it was. So um, that was a huge part of it for us, was always just trying to make sure that we had um, visual tutorials and visual explanations of things. Um, you know, hey, you're going to use this um, hut, right? And like showing, like we'd have an MOTD and it was like, Here's what you're gonna you're gonna get, and like this is how you're gonna use it, and these are the rewards you're gonna get, and that visual picture um, process helped people understand the the product uh, a lot easier than having to read a big block of text. Mm. Yeah, the the and there's a, a number of other uh, games that I've seen that specifically use icons. I can't, uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I remember seeing it a lot. Uh, uh, using icons instead of words for uh, concepts like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's definitely a, a good way to go. I think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it sometimes though it doesn't exactly fit the theme of the game because one of the really one of the things that I like about games is it's an interactive way of telling a story and and in particular by telling a story I mean to be able to create a feeling or an emotion in the audience. So sometimes little things like that can take you out of it mm-hmm. from, from really what the game is trying to do. Like you wouldn't want, this is an absurd example, but you wouldn't want to play if you had uh, uh, PT on the Nintendo 64, you wouldn't be able to use that, uh, uh, the Nintendo 64's button pop-up things in any sort of representation in PT, like uh, uh, when uh, it's fairly early on and no one can really access PT anymore, but there's a bit where uh, there's a clue to hit the X button to, to grab a thing. Uh, but that wouldn't really translate too well if you were to use uh, like an X symbol, like in the button in particular, mm-hmm. like a big B button that was on the Nintendo 64 controller. It would just l- ludicrously out of place <laughs> and it would ruin the effect. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, let's see here. I've actually done, I haven't done localization testing exactly, but I have tested localized builds in other languages, and that was still one of the really common things to point out because I had no idea what I was reading, but I could tell you when I knew it was going off the edge of the line. <laughs> yeah, I. My first uh, testing gig was um, at the first company I worked at (laughs) was I tested a game and it was a turn-based, a fairly deep turn-based strategy game that I had never played before. And I was basically testing the Italian and Spanish and German versions. <laughs> so luckily, I was working with a team who had played the game, so I could ask them questions. But it was always fun to try and figure out exactly what I was supposed to be doing or what the best thing was by just, you know, kind of like fumbling through and playing. Um, I... I learned a little bit of Italian, I think, by playing that. <laughs> well, one would hope you picked up a couple of words here and there. Yeah. Turn like complete. This. I could say turn <laughs> complete in like seven languages now. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> so that was Italian, German, and Spanish? Italian, German, Spanish. Uh, I think those, they're uh, probably French also. E- yeah, I was going to say, E-figs. did you go for the, yeah, the whole e English, French, Italian, German, Spanish. Yeah, yep. 
Yeah, that's uh, some of the most common uh, localization work is done to those languages. Although more often now you see uh, Portuguese included as well. Yeah. And then you get to the choice of, are you talking Portuguese or Brazilian Portuguese? Because these are different. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably like the difference between French, uh, Quebecois French, and Creole French. Yeah, right. All kinds of dialects. That's another the challenge of localization is dialect dialects. Daleks? Uh, not Daleks, no. <laughs> that that would think, that would be a really big problem if those were involved. I think exterminate doesn't necessarily translate into any other language, it's just exterminate in all <laughs> <languages>. <laughs> yeah, that'd um, be great. No, like uh, for example, um, when I am not familiar with any games that are translated into like in Indian, like to mm-hmm. translate a game for India, because there's so many different dialects yeah. that it's just almost impossible. And you see the same thing with um, kind of some other aspects of of uh, Asian nations, where um, Chinese, for example, there's a lot of different dialects, and a lot of companies are just like, well, we're going to hit Mandarin and Cantonese and English, and then whatever sub dialects are there, they'll they'll probably be covered mm-hmm. um those those regions are difficult for other reg- reasons as well of course oh, yeah. of like that just the text itself and special characters and um your game having to support all of those different characters is not a, a that doesn't even thing. get to the business side of things yeah yeah uh-huh but a lot of that you know that's like one of the reasons why a lot of those com- a lot of companies see that as a barrier to entry is because of that localization side of it, just the tech or the even the translation side of it, just the text and the tech to get the text in the game is a barrier. And then your game may not culturally fit over there and mm-hmm. miss the localization. So uh, another game I worked on, we were trying to break into the Chinese market and our ideas about the way that the game was played and the themes behind it um, didn't necessarily translate one for one to the Chinese market. So we actually hired a different company to go through our game and kind of remake it to fit the Chinese um, uh, culture. Mm-hmm. But that's that was an expensive process. And at that point, we basically forked the game into two different games. So yeah. it's, it's difficult to maintain. Yeah, especially if, you, if, if it's not just a coat of paint that you're doing. Yeah, like exactly. like some some text and maybe some art and some menu art, but you actually have to change functionality. Yeah. You, you'd have to split it and develop the two different things in parallel, which would kind of suck. Yep. Um, but uh, that that kind of uh, reminds me. Speaking of uh, uh, how the the game is received by the audience, and I mentioned you know how it ma- how games can make you feel, how it engenders a feeling. A lot of that has to is built on the language and the feelings associated with it is built on the culture that it comes from. And I'm not going to get too deep into this. It's like understanding that this is a concept that works is, is just what I'm getting at. So if you can consider, say, oh, what's a good example? Speaking of the uh, uh, Asian regions, uh, the uh, Japanese war flag, the imperial flag, that carries a lot of connotations in that area, and rightfully so, that aren't they they aren't really known. They don't register in, say, the United States. Mm-hmm. Because yep. uh, we don't associate that flag with war atrocities. Mm-hmm. But, you know, tell that to someone from Korea and they'll they won't be happy. Yeah. So definitely a different take. Yeah. So if if you're just trying to Say you have a World War II game and you've got um, some Japan, uh, Imperial Japanese Navy ship flying a flag. What flag do you fly? The one that they were flying at the time or the one that might be a little less insulting to a market? Or are you going to split that from one market to another? And especially mm-hmm. if you're playing, especially if you're in a World War II game playing as a Japanese soldier, are you going to ask a Korean to play as a Japanese soldier? with the imperial flag i mean that might be like i don't know asking someone in europe this isn't going to be a direct comparison but you know it it gets the impression across is asking someone in europe to uh uh, fight as a german soldier 
under the swastika flag. Mm-hmm. It's like that. You 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 may not be engendering the feeling that you're going for if yeah. you go for something like that. And all of these things mean different things in different places. And sometimes they'll be contradictory. It's entirely possible for that to happen too. Yeah, uh, Germans actually have pretty strict laws on what you can and can't put into a game. Like, for example, you can't show blood in a German game, so you have to make it green or do something like that. Um, that you can't have any Nazi sim- symbi- symbology in the games that you put over there. So if you're doing a World War II shooter, um, you know, you're going to have to find ways to kind of work around that. I, I think they have some except, exemptions to that, but yeah, you're probably going to have to resort to the Iron Cross or something. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you know, we might, generally speaking, in the United States, kind of cringe at that level of uh, restriction of representation of ideas, freedom of speech and all. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if anyone's got the right to be very humorless about this stuff, I would say that they do. Yeah, Absolutely. And they're German, so they're probably pretty humorless in the first place. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> We're not making any friends this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, all of that cultural iconography is, is really important. And, uh, and, and, it, and it goes into uh, advertising as well. Um, there was a game that I was associated with, and at, before it went out, thankfully, I saw a copy, uh, some copy for an ad or a press release or something. And this is a, a game that includes combat, where in some degree you could associate yourself with one society or culture or another. And this was going to be released all across the world. And the word crusade was included in oh the uh, in the copy. And the moment I saw that, I'm like, nope. And I got up and went right over to the, uh, the person who wrote it. I'm like, I don't think you want to use that word. <laughs> if this is going to be released into any Muslim territory or the Middle East, that probably doesn't mean what you want it to mean. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there's it's one of those things that's always going to be tricky. And sometimes I think uh, people just plow forward, and I've seen, you know, all all the idea, all these ideas of what's offensive and not offensive because of these cultures is always an interesting thing to tackle. Um, if you just look at the complexities of um, uh, what's it called, um, being like oversensitivity here in the United States, a political correctness. That's what mm-hmm. I'm looking for. If you if you look at uh, political correctness in the United States and people carrying that to a, an extreme degree, you know, in your game, if you mention Christmas, some people are offended that you're not also mentioning their religion celebration, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, carry that across all of the cultures across the world. And uh, if you're trying to make a game that's based in reality, um, that like a f- free to play game that's touching a lot of cultures, then you can you can easily get yourself into hum- some hot water pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully that's why you're working with uh, specialized teams and that do localization and they can help you out with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of the teams again, this is actually something I, I I wanted to mention where because there's a lot of these little quirks to the society and cultures that you're targeting and, and the, the meanings of the languages themselves, you know, cause, cause different languages are going to have different, uh, 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 homonyms and, and, uh, synonyms and whatnot, uh, given their language. One, uh, test that I had thought of, although I have yet to use this actually, but, uh, one test to check the quality of your translation house is to give them, some line of text that contains some sort of culturally specific reference or joke or something like that. Mm-hmm. Give it to the translation house to translate it into some other target language. And when they get it back, speak to someone you know who is familiar with that language, whom you trust with their interpretation of things, who's familiar with the language and the culture, and see if they were able to translate 
the meaning behind what you gave them. Interesting. So it would come back and it wouldn't, you know, uh, if you're referencing, let's say, Family Guy. You, you write something that's uh, a, a, uh, like a cutaway gag in the vein of Family Guy, and there's a punchline in there that's in the vein of Family Guy. It might not translate so well to someone who doesn't understand American television from the 1950s to 1970s. <laughs> right. Because those jokes, they're built off of a history, oftentimes. Um, so... If you're giving that to somebody else, you're probably going to have to change the joke entirely to make it funny. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And it's always it's another good, hopefully another good byproduct of that is them coming back and finding out that they're also comfortable asking you questions and suggesting things that might be a little bit different, so that you yeah. can detect those things and see that oh hey that didn't translate. <laughs> you know what's what is a good alternative for that. Mm-hmm. Which is what really a good localization should be like, and it should be, you know, coming back to the creators to get approval for any of these changes in meaning. Um, and that's that's what I think is the real key to a good localization is not just to be, uh, you know, uh, one to one meaning, but uh, to be faithful to the original idea to the original emotion that's being that that you're trying to express mm -hmm. um one of the comments or criticisms that i've seen for for some of the fan translation projects is that while the translated text might be more authentic in the sense that it is a more direct translation of the original japanese text some people thought it seemed kind of hokey or very anime tropey, like in an anime when there's a bunch of dialogue going on, you know, the as you already know stuff, or, you know, when you stop and have a conversation in the middle of a fight. It, the dialogue sounded like that rather than something that really speaks to an American audience, mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the Japanese culture, the way the anime dialogue works, uh, uh, that fight dialogue works, generates a feeling in the audience coming out of that culture, which is why it's used. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't so much in American culture, which is why it kind of falls flat and you want to rewrite it a lot. However, <laughs> on the flip side, that could also be why, say, Dragon Ball is popular, is because it does represent this kind of approach of, you know, having these conversations in the fight, but... At the same time, the whole thing is wrapped and presented in a way that's pretty approachable. So it's more like an end to that kind of dialogue for uh, other people around the world, not just in Japan. Yeah. And going back to audience again, it's uh, with I always feel like in movies and uh, as opposed to games and anime like television with anime in particular, there's a complete there's a very specific audience that very much is into a lot of anime and you know you in games you see it also for example with JRPGs Japanese uh, role playing games there's a there's a hardcore american audience that loves JRPGs and they get a lot more japanese culture than like your average you know sally from ohio um so a lot of times it's it's okay to make the translation a little bit more literal. Um, but if you're looking for an audience that is going to be of a broader spectrum, translating it from one uh, culture to another, you have to find something that is going to work for that larger audience. And it may not be a quote-unquote true um, translation, and that's the localization part of it. Um, I, I always find that to be interesting to kind of think like, <laughs> oh, well, how is this going to translate into another langu language or how is this going to be localized? Sometimes I think that some of the, it, <laughs> with the last game I worked on, one of our uh, designers he, who did all our writing was a really good writer when it came to puns. <laughs> and mm. I just, you know, when you make a pun in 
as a play on words in your game, you have to wonder like, is how is that going to translate? Because you're, you know, you're saying it's tongue in cheek, and it kind of connotates that this is kind of funny, and we're not taking it too seriously. And so you have to to try and get that localized. And I never I never knew if they actually did do a very good job with the puns. Our <laughs> localization manager said that they did, so I have to take their word for it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, puns are one of those things that oh, every time I read one, and I'm it's, I know it's going to be localized. I'm thinking to myself like. I wonder God. what the, I wonder what the German version of this actually is going to say. <laughs> well, that's I know that's actually a really big problem when translating a Japanese game because the Japanese sense of humor is very pun heavy, mm-hmm. and they do it a lot. And so a lot of the stuff they do, they have a lot of plays on words that don't translate at all. Yeah. Uh, and if you watch a lot of uh, subtitled anime, a lot of the times they'll do that. They'll They'll put the direct translation on there, and and they'll have like the the on the bottom of the screen is dialogue text, and up on the top of the screen is an explanation of the joke. Uh huh. <laughs> which which is, I find I find it kind of heavy handed. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that that type of thing play out because like you're like, oh, uh, am I am I supposed to be laughing? Like I I get you explained it, but uh. Still not quite funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, and th- and that's why in my article I pointed out the uh, is one of my favorite localization gags ever from FLCL mm-hmm. or Fooly Cooly. Mm-hmm. I, I prefer calling it FLCL because it sounds less doofy. <laughs> but uh, th- there was some reference, and in the uh, dubbed version, they changed the reference to talking about Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> And because in in America, like Crystal Pepsi is it it just brings about all these images of what a weird thing that happened. (laughs) And oddly enough, since that translation came out, there's there's been this kind of Internet swell of support for the concept of Crystal Pepsi and more (laughs) fans of Crystal Pepsi have come out right now. No tomorrow. <laughs> you know that 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 uh, soda that had those uh, Van Halen commercials. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I think of Crystal Pepsi, I immediately think of the Saturday Night Live skit where they did Crystal Gravy. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Homer looking at uh, Crystal. I guess it was supposed to be Crystal Buzz. Just like, hmm, <laughs> invisible cola. Yeah, I, I read that um, the that part, and I agree. Like, I thought that that was a pretty freaking good localization. How they kind of swapped that out because the connotation that you get, and like, I don't know what the original Japanese connotation was supposed to be, but like, it doesn't matter so much. Yeah, exactly. See, because seeing the English version and being an English speaker and having all the that cultural knowledge of what Crystal Pepsi is, immediately, you know, made me chuckle a little bit. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's really funny. I really like that bit. Uh, um, let's see here. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I think is is really important about the whole thing is just being faithful. To the original idea. And uh, when that happens, for me, like I said at the beginning, authenticity is not as important. Particularly if the the creator is given their sign-off. There, there's no need to be offended. I, I don't understand people who get offended on the creator's behalf. Yeah, yeah. For something that the creator has given approval to. Yeah, it's, it's a little much, right? Like Yeah, yeah. And and so I'm just gonna pull out a phrase that it kind of felt like you were dancing around earlier. A lot of these the the weabos. The if the kind of Japanophiles or you know, some sometimes it feels like there are people who are so enamored with another culture that anything that removes and let's just keep using uh, Japan as an example. If if someone is really into Japanese culture and very fascinated by it, 
then it makes sense that if they receive something that is from Japan that's been localized and had some of the Japanese-ness, the Japan-ness mm-hmm. removed from it or diluted, I can understand being a, a, a little disappointed. But at the same time, it's it's not an insult. Uh, and And at the same time, if you're that into it, you should probably be working on being able to get it directly from the source untranslated at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. <laughs> um, another one of the... It, mm, pardon me. I got I to gotta point out another thing here is with Japan... And this is kind of another example of how things bring about different feelings. They come from different places when they're coming from different cultures. A lot of the time... And this isn't, like, everywhere, but it's not rare. At least it certainly didn't used to be. Where when uh, a, a character, a black character, is in anime or in some games, the image really seems to come from old minstrel shows and blackface. Mm-hmm. And I always get really uncomfortable when I see that. Yeah, me too. Uh, blackface, not so cool. <laughs> and... Some of that also is because of the history of the United States. Like, mm-hmm. this is something that makes us uncomfortable, and Japan is com- pretty much oblivious to it. Yeah. They don't care. They just see these images coming from, you know, wherever, whether it's American culture or something, and they is like, okay, we want to, we want to, uh, this image has translated to something to them and they want to call upon that image and then when it gets sent back to America it's like this is kind of offensive and it makes me uncomfortable. Mhm. Yeah. It's it's a little like uh if you're going to do a Google translation <laughs> and you just like run it through a translator and back into English and it sounds really off. Yeah, all your base are belong to us. <laughs> yeah. Some something along those lines. That's the best, man. Oh god, I love that translation. <laughs> and hey, yeah, there's there's something to be said for having a really uh poor translation. Actually, that brings to mind uh uh something that uh I've been working on for the site and uh I've been promising it for a while. Uh, uh Goose and I going through Killer7. I've been working on getting some footage for that, and they did something kind of interesting in the translation for that game. There is a lot of dialogue in it, and from the Japanese to English, they didn't re-record everything. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that all of the untranslated dialogue is in Japanese. Actually, the unlocalized dialogue was in English. It was in terrible English in the Japanese version. <laughs> Horrible English. Uh, and what they did was for all... In, in this game you see a bunch of like ghostly characters. I'm not exactly sure if they're ghosts. The game is weird. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll say. But <laughs> instead, they ran all of the dialogue through so many filters that they have this weird resonant echoey sound and it's almost impossible to make out what they're saying. So they just mask all of the audio and everything, you just read it all. And it, at once, it it's an effective uh, localization with the resources you have. That was probably a lot cheaper to do than re-recording everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It fed into the atmosphere of the game, this weird off nature of the dialogue and um i don't know it it just it just works for me creative solutions man creative solutions for problems especially when creative you know you put yourself into a box and then you have to figure out how to work within the box instead of getting outside of it (laughs) it's always some interesting things (laughs) sometimes thinking outside of the box you're already in a box. You yeah. got to stay there. Yeah, just so you're gonna have to turn the box over on its side and do something else. Yeah, you know. And some people were just like, "Oh well, screw it. Just like, just do the literal <laughs> translation and send that over there, and you get all your base or belong to us." Yep. And and the one of the tricks though is even with the literal translation, if you have a good literal translation, like we said before, sometimes you're gonna have 
because you get sent over, you might send someone over text and they don't understand that this is referring to this as opposed to that. And there could be context in the game that requires a different meaning. So you could have the same dialogue or the same text, but because the context has changed and the translator doesn't know, there might be a better translation in one context than another. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the translator might be sitting there, it's like, why are there two copies of this line of dialogue? <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. But uh, that and that's why I, I would imagine a lot of localization houses uh, would prefer to have custom versions of the game where they can just pump in. The, you can just you know pump in the new dialogue and look at it in game right away. Mm-hmm. As, but uh, not all developers have the resources to, to make that happen. I know that's true. <sighs> and, and even then, there, there's still more stuff that can go wrong because um, sometimes, say, what, what would happen if you were making an arcade machine and there's a region that's used to using their right hand for the control stick and your, their left hand for the buttons, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's different things that can create different dependencies, and and I I don't think that's ever been a thing. But this is just an example of where if you're going to a different region, there's always going to be assumptions that are going to get broken. You, you to make something, you have to make assumptions, and any of those assumptions are free are fair game when you're going to to a completely new market. Yeah, that's I, that's ultimately why you try and get those localization teams that are familiar with the culture, so that you can you can hopefully not make too many assumptions or empower them to make make those assumptions in, corrected into the the proper things. And uh, this is actually another aspect that is often overlooked for how important publishers are in the industry. Because uh, publishers are the ones who will help a developer get some of this cultural awareness and understanding. Yeah. Now, hopefully, hopefully your publisher, hopefully the publisher has the resources to actually do that, or even have their own offices where they can say, "Oh, we've got uh, uh, an office." Pardon me, have an office in Europe. Let's uh, send a build over there and see how Europe would treat this. We have an office in Asia. Let's see how uh, Asians would. Uh, uh, the Asian territories would uh, react to this. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I don't know, we, we, we have an office in Sao Paulo. How, how do Brazilians look at this? Yeah, yeah. Can't ignore Brazil. It's an emerging market. Yep. So, yeah, you definitely see a lot of games will, and games and movies, etc. do this where they have different publishers in those countries specifically. Oh, yeah, that too. Where then, oh, hey, that I don't really... They're going to take care of a lot of that work in order to make it successful in their native country anyway. So it's a partnership at that point. Yeah. And and it's really important to not overlook how time-consuming and expensive some of this work can be. Because all of the focus groups and testing, and not necessarily like QA testing, but market testing uh, that goes on depending on the nature of your product, may have to get completely redone in a new region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's days. Um, a lot of times uh, when you're thinking about the schedule of a project, the localization part of it is always an interesting um, beast. You always have to have it fairly late in the game-making process. Because you have to have all the assets ready. Correct. You got to. And the have... assets could change if if you're not far enough along. Yep. So you want to get that text locked down fairly quickly, um, or at least have a couple of days of cushion, so you can get everything translated. And then, okay, this text is now locked. We can continue to push our builds forward and get it out. Um, for uh, where I work, we actually have uh, our localization team is incredible, and the built-in process that we have is an overnight translation process. So at the end of the day, all of our texts get zipped up, sent off, and we have translators across the world that um, start their translation process. Uh, um, as our day ends, their day begins, and they start translating. By the end of the day, they're done translating, send it back to us. We wake up in the morning, 
receive a file and put it back in. So we have this day long cycle where um, if you if you have text and you're about to ship something on uh, Wednesday, as long as you have your text done by Tuesday night, then Wednesday morning you can come in, put that text in, have it tested. If it's clean, good to go. Um, but if it's if something's broken, then well, you're gonna have to wait until tomorrow to to ship your feature. Hmm. Um, and sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's not. It's uh, one of the a lot of people kind of take a more cavalier attitude towards other countries and their um, and the translations that come into games. Um, if if you have uh, for example, a feature and you have a tutorial for that feature in a freemium game. Um, it's brand new. Nobody's ever seen it before. If you don't have that translated that, and it's sent to a Spanish market and it's all in English, you know, we treat that as a blocker that for mm-hmm. us is, is like, imagine if you released it in America and the first line of the tutorial was in Spanish, like, okay, well, they may be able to get the gist of it, but most people are going to be like, I don't know what that says. And that's a blocker. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked in companies in the past where they just did not care about the translation. So if something was a translator properly on time, then they would just push forward and keep keep moving with it. But, um, you know, I think if you really want to push out a quality product, you want to push out a quality product in all of your districts, all of all of the places where the game is going to ship. Um, and you really want that good localization. You really want it to be successful there um, because your every one of your customers is important, not just your American or English speaking customers. Um, sometimes I see other game makers being a little more cavalier with it. Um, and uh, it's, it's something that uh, it's just been kind of instilled. And I think it helps that I have um, working with my team is such a, a, a good, you know, translation process and a good translation team. And I think that if everybody starts to do, and I think that game game making and movie making are becoming much more savvy with localization uh, oh, yeah. than, than we were five, 10 years ago. Probably, um, probably movie making in particular because movies that you cannot rest on domestic release to turn a profit anymore. Yeah, it's, it's much more a worldwide medium now. Yeah, games yeah. have games have shipped internationally almost since their inception. There, I, I I agree with you. The games are improving, but I think movies cinema has made a bigger leap. Yeah, I think that they were lagging a lot more though. Um, probably. Yeah. You never used to hear about worldwide releases. It was always. We're going to release in this market on this date, and then weeks later, two months mm-hmm. later, it would be releasing in another um, uh, zone. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you hear about these giant blockbusters, and they're all releasing, like Star Wars released across the world at the same time, I think, yeah. um, at least in major markets. And that that's pretty incredible um, to think mm-hmm. that you have to, you have to lock those. The logistics for that are impressive yeah i think digital helps a lot with that right like we don't oh yeah we don't have to like actually mail off a can of film for somebody to to go and and see and do translations for and then subtitle and then a master (laughs) and then get that all you know copied and sent out it's just like all digital move it faster yeah i mean uh, if star trek the motion picture the original film in what was it 1979 (coughs) that (coughs) excuse me sorry no worries there is no chance that that one would have been able to launch worldwide simultaneously because, as the story goes, you're talking about shipping out canisters of film. They had them lined up at the airport that needed to go out in minutes because they were still editing and printing the last reel. Man. Like, they had to rush them out into the last canisters and then ship them off to the theaters. Oh, my God. For premiering the next day. It's like, oh, that is that is right on the wire. I mean, that's almost every game that I've ever worked on. It's always making changes to the last second and then pushing it out. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Then, you yeah. know, just, I, there have been times where I've been burned by localization because of that. Just like mm. you're working up to the last minute and you're making changes and all of a sudden you're like, Oh whoops, we changed this text. Duh, uh, now we're screwed. 
quick change it back change it back <laughs> yeah and then there's the and then there's the fact that moving forward any game i mean video games are moving much more towards uh, software as a service for a lot of titles yeah and so anytime you add a language you are in, in, in unless something else happens you're anchored to that this is a maintenance cost that you must maintain moving forward forever for this game. Yeah, it's that's one. Like if if you're supporting efigs and you and you know, like, okay, we're supporting you. Uh, let's add Portuguese, and now now you have to add Portuguese every time. Yeah, we're currently in the game that I'm working on, um, potentially adding Arabic to the game, and Arabic doesn't read left to right; it reads right to oh. left. Oh. And, that's another big thing oh yeah there. yeah oh god that i hope you don't have scrolling text no no scroll oh so um you'd that, have to rewrite the uh, you'd have to rewrite a lot to make that work so that's the thing what that was our expectation was that it was going to take a lot of work but we actually just kind of jury rigged and threw it in just to see what it looked like turns out we could make our korean builds work with it um because most of our text is actually center justified, <laughs> so it just like, <laughs> it just reads. It doesn't matter. It just works. Just uh, kind of fell backwards into some luck. There. Yeah, exactly. So, but um, yeah, Im- Im- imagine if you were in a you're doing a text crawl, like a, a scrolling thing, and all of a sudden you have to make it go backwards. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> uh, like I said, a lot of this work has to run on certain assumptions. That's one of them. Yeah. You, you, you would think that if you, were, if you were doing a thing where, you know, text was coming up and you were reading it, like it was being typed, that it would go left to right. But no, there's languages that go right to left How or did... up to down or... Yeah. Is, uh, what language does up and down, up to down... Japanese Jap- can yeah Japanese that's sort of the, I guess they do they would do kanji or something because I'm thinking of star like the Star Wars text crawl and yeah. like how would they do that in other languages For- fortunately Japanese also goes it's either left to right or up down mm. the the strange thing with uh, or the the difference between Japanese books and American books is that uh, in Japan you flip the pages the other way around mm. <laughs> But you still read left to right, so I, whatever. <laughs> Again, another assumption. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if if you had something that was supposed to be, you know, someone is reading a book in the morning, what uh, what direction are they flipping pages, or what side of the road is someone driving their car on? Right. Yep. All of um, these different little cultural differences throughout everything. Yep. It. Uh, and it's entirely possible that some of these things could be important story points. Like, say, someone was supposed to be reading the book backwards because there was something off about them, and it becomes a major plot point later. And then you put it in in uh, Japanese, but to them it looks like they're reading it the right way, and then it's a plot point that they were reading it the right way? <laughs> the, yeah, that doesn't work. Oh, my. So... I think that I think that's a lot of uh, of what I wanted to go over and uh, some some more stuff that you made me think of and it was a good talk. Yeah, uh, always a good time. Yeah, uh, I uh, I would just say to anybody out there, if you want the authentic quote unquote authentic translation, you should be willing to put in the legwork. Uh, if otherwise, at least respect the work that translators put in to making something faithful and trying to make it approachable to another audience. I, I, I am not going to disrespect people who want to see the more Japanese version of things because, hey, if it's what you want, it's what you want. That's fine. But understand that uh, it's... it don't, don't get huffy and treat it like an insult to the, the creator. It... it it's not necessarily that. The only way you should you should be upset is if the creator comes out and says, "This was garbage. I never gave them permission to do this. I told them not to do this." And and if something like that happens, yeah, it's it's fine to be offended. But generally speaking, that's not how it works. All right. Any other final thoughts you'd like to put in on the topic, Dave? Nah, I'm my brain is closing. <laughs> All right. And fortunately, it's not because your your head is orange. <laughs> yes, thank God my head is not orange. Well spoken. You, 
I, I am not aware of you spending too much time in a tanning bed. <laughs> yeah. That'd be more of a spray tan, I think. Uh, anyhow, this is the point in the show where we like to share stories of, uh, of our time working in the industry. And Dave, you've done the one, you did one the last time you were here. So I'll say that this time it's my turn. Awesome. And uh, I, I alluded this to you before we started recording, but this is this is the story of Bug 10,000. And by that I mean it was the bug with the issue number 10,000 in the database. Now, to some of you, 10,000 bugs in a database for a game might sound like a lot. And for some games it is. For some games, nah. Nah, that's, that's not that much. Um... I am actually working on a game right now that has over 15,000 issues in the database. Oh, man. Well, some of them are bugs, some of them are development tasks and stuff, and, and it's it's a game that's been around for a while and is continuing development and so forth, so it just kind of adds on. So That's not that bad if it's tasks, too. Yeah. So, see what I mean? It sounds like a lot, and then you look at it, it's like, eh, maybe not. Or if I said, how many bugs do you think are in the World of Warcraft database? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's got to be in the six figures. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I would pay money to see that. <laughs> Not a lot. Five <laughs> bucks, maybe. <laughs> but I, I would be willing to pay money to just, like, leaf through that. Anyhow, there were several of us on this project, and we were on a previous project on the same sort of series of games. Not exactly a direct sequel, but pretty close. Um... And the previous game had somewhere, I think it was between three and 4,000 bugs at the end, although the production there was weird, but that, that doesn't exactly matter. When we saw that we were approaching bug 10,000, we knew we were going to hit it at the pace we were going and the schedule of things we were, were running at. And this QA department in particular had a very strong desire to, you, you only wrote legitimate bugs like it was a mark of shame if you wrote a bug and it was marked invalid like that was worse than writing a bug and someone saying it was a duplicate which still wasn't good you don't want to dupe bugs no because you're adding more to the 10,000 that don't need to be there <laughs> well that's why we also had people kind of uh approving them and or redlining them and and uh before they went out so mm -hmm. there were people who would try to catch them but we were Rightly or wrongly, we were treating the engineers as as precious little butterflies that needed to be protected from the reality of their own bugs. <laughs> so everything had to be written in a very specific way. You didn't want to bother them. I mean, they were probably being pushed to work far too many hours at the same time. So, you know, give and take with all of this. But the point is, the point of all of this is we wanted to celebrate hitting five digits. We wanted to celebrate bug 10,000. And to do that, we wanted to find the most insignificant yet valid bug possible in the game. <laughs> and we... It's almost depressing how much company money might have been spent as there were like four of us who put our heads together and spent multiple hours. So... Certainly over a full work day when aggregated across all of us, debating and trying to figure out the best bug to write with this goal. And what we came up with was, after a few false starts, we found um, like a big computer display. And it had time zone clocks all around the edges for different areas in the world. And in the uh, in the center of it was one of those sort of uh, day-night uh, maps. So you can see what area of the world is in daylight and what's at nighttime. Uh -huh. And we, we looked at it and we thought, if we look at this hard enough, I'm sure we can find a mistake. And so we compared all of the time zones to each other and everything kind of looked right. And after a while, we realized... Uh, I forget. I forget the country. One of the countries presented in this, we realized, does not observe daylight savings time, <laughs> which 
It's like, okay, if that's the, if that's the case, then one of these is off by an hour. And, but, but now we have to prove what time of year it is. <laughs> okay. Well, with the, uh, uh, with the day night map, we can have some, the, the Northern hemisphere is, is, uh, towards the sun. It's, it's not necessarily summer, but it's, you know, there's more daylight on the Northern hemisphere from this map. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we need, but we need to make sure like what month this is, what, what this, we need to come up with something concrete so that we can prove that this is a legitimate issue. Otherwise they can come back and say, oh, it's, it's not daylight savings yet, or it's after daylight savings or something. We have to prove what time of year it is. And, and uh, let's see here. There was a calendar we saw on a wall at one point and it had a, 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 a month. I forget what month it is. It doesn't really matter, but we, we dismissed that one because it, it, while it was a calendar, it was also old and beat up, and we figured it could have been there for years. And so, again, we had a few false starts like this as we were trying to prove what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. In the end, we realized one of the stages, Mardi Gras is happening. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> Eureka! Like, yes! Yes! This is Mardi Gras. And uh, uh, so that, based on when Mardi Gras happens... Uh, so unless the the between this stage this stage happened earlier than you see this calendar or this uh, this clock, and with, because of that we knew what time of year it was and we knew that yes in fact one of these clocks is incorrect, <laughs> <laughs> and we were we were like yes yes we got it so we figured out in time for for us to to count to ten thousand specifically and several of us were sitting there. With the bug written up, waiting, waiting for bug nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine to be written, <laughs> so that we could enter it. Nice. And I think we had one of us elected to be the one to enter it. And oddly enough, bug ten thousand, we we got it in, and bug ten thousand and one had an earlier timestamp. <laughs> And this is because there was there was one person in the department who did not give a damn about this, uh-huh. and so they weren't waiting. I, I don't think other people were waiting, but this was also the most prolific bug writer on the team. Uh-huh. So he was just you know right churning the these things out. I think I, I think he wound up with over nine hundred bugs in the database. So he was damn. a very significant portion on his own, and this was a team of God at least thirty or forty people. So nice. Um, but it was a long time ago, so I don't remember the exact number. Anyhow, he didn't care, and he entered something without paying attention to it or thinking about it, and that's why 10,000... He entered what became bug 10,001, mm-hmm. but the clock on his computer, this actually predated when computers automatically updated their clocks based on a server. <laughs> his clock was a little bit fast, <laughs> or, or slow or whatever. I'm I'm not interested in figuring out the relative positions of the clocks. Um, so he wound up with he entered it after, but his clock was set to earlier, and the bug database just grabbed the timestamp from the clock system time. Uh-huh. And that's why ten thousand one actually had an earlier timestamp than ten thousand. Anyhow, with this bug. The next day we come in and the developer, the, the, like the engineers had written on the bug comments like, fortunately, they took the joke as it was intended. Uh-huh. Because they could have, it's it's possible they could have gotten really upset that we wrote something that's stupid. <laughs> Probably. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they, wrote, they wrote up a thing saying, this is clearly a critical issue that'll cause ennui in the users and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And uh, someone else, not not in our team, but they wrote up this, they printed out the bug with a header, you have officially been owned, <laughs> and pasted this in various places uh, across the floor for other game teams to see. Nice. <laughs> and oddly enough, the developers, apparent, apparently the engineers at one point got drunk and wrote a bug. They said that the character jumped out of the screen and was running around with them. <laughs> so it was pretty... It, when you read it, it was pretty clear that they were kind of drunk and trying to recapture the lightning, which didn't work. But in any case, it is uh, it is one hell of a story that uh, I will be probably retelling for the rest of my life. 
It may not be the pinnacle of my stories, but it was one of the most memorable. <laughs> Bug 10,000. Yep. We, we, we managed to, to get the number. It was the perfect issue. Everything lined up right for that one. It was great. I've always been interested in Bug 666 in a database. Yeah, the Bug of the Beast. Bug of the Beast. <laughs> yep, uh, that most most projects are probably going to hit that. Yeah. Hell, we, we actually have a new project started at work, and I think we've broke 300 already. Almost halfway there. Yep, and that's uh, that's only with a couple of testers for a few days. Wow. So... But uh, that also happens on any new project. You're just going to be like, okay, gloves off. What can I see? Yep. A lot. Yeah, and the earlier you are, the more bugs there are. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much again for joining me, Dave. Yeah, of course. And uh, to everybody out there, uh, join me again next week for the next Behind the Line article. And uh, join us again in two weeks for the next Behind the Line radio. See you next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs.